Well, today is probably the most dangerous Sunday in the history of my pastoral career because today is the day that in the year of 2020, we talk about politics. And as we've all said at some point this year, what's the worst that could happen? And, and I just want to let you know up front, today my goal, my goal, this is my, this is my goal. My goal is to offend everyone but attack no one. That's my goal. How do you like that as a goal to start out the sermon today? And here's, and here's the thing. Today we're talking about politics, not because I particularly want to talk about politics in the middle of 2020. I think we've all had enough of it. I think we'd all rather move on. But we're talking about politics because early on in the life of our church, I made the decision that every time we're in an election year, so every other year, every time we're in an election year, I've made the decision that we're going to talk about how faith and politics Intersected. I, I remember thinking at the, at the beginning of this year, I thought this year would probably get kind of crazy because of the election. Ha! Wouldn't you love to live in a year where the craziest political thing that happened was the election? I would love to live in that world. Um, like there have been so many crazy political things and politicized things that have happened this year that I, I just think there's some of us that have even forgot some of the bigger things that have happened this year because we're all kind of looking to the future going, well, what's the next crazy, insane thing that's going to happen? So just to refresh our memory on the crazy things that have happened this year, let me just, you know, maybe to depress everyone a little bit as we start out because who doesn't love that? Let me read to you some of the things that have happened in 2020 already. We had massive brush fires in Australia. We had the United States assassinated uh, an Iranian general during a U.S. drone strike. We had President Trump's impeachment trial. China went on lockdown due to the coronavirus. The first cases of COVID reached the U.S. in Washington state. And the United Kingdom withdrew from the European Union. And that takes us to, Jan to the end of January. In February, the Iowa Democratic Party caucus took weeks to determine the results so that quality control could take place. That's, that's probably fine. I'm sure that's fine. President Trump was impeached by the House and then acquitted by the Senate. The 49ers lost in the Super Bowl because Kyle Shanahan apparently doesn't like winning Super Bowls when he has double-digit leads. Take that, Jared. And the coronavirus disease officially got named COVID-19. Now we're through February. In March, the Democratic Party rallied behind Joe Biden to push him to become the Democratic nominee for president, making 2020 Trump versus Biden, something that no one would want to watch if it was ever a UFC fight. Italy went under nationwide lockdown. The World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a global pandemic. The NBA, NHL, and MLB all suspended or canceled their seasons. President Trump declared a national emergency due to COVID. The stock market collapsed with the worst single day and the worst single week drop since 1987. The Summer Olympics were, were postponed. Remember, like right now, we would be in the lead up to the Summer Olympics happening. And now we're through March. Craziness. And then things really got cooking in April and May. In April, the world experienced Easter online. King, Kim Jong-un might have died. We don't really know. He might have died. The Pentagon, the, the actual Pentagon released videos of UFOs. That happened this year, and that wasn't the biggest story on that day. Murder hornets arrived in the U.S. Video of Ahmaud Arbery's murder was released, and some states decided to reopen after their corona coronavirus shutdowns, and George Floyd was murdered by a police officer, sparking protests and riots at levels that our country hasn't seen in a long time. And that brings us to June. Welcome to June, where the protests continued. Mutant ticks were attacking children in Russia. 
That's a thing. And that got brushed over because that wasn't even remotely the biggest stories of that day. States that opened are seeing massive spikes in their COVID case numbers. Chaz may or may not be a different country that still exists in this, inside the city of Seattle. Seattle, by the time this actually airs, because things are changing so often, locust swarms are hitting the Indian subcontinent. India and China might start World War III, and that's probably fine. Um, and wildfires and Saharan dust storms are very real, but they're getting little attention because, well, everything else that's happening. And here's the thing, here's why, here's why I bring that up. We're now at the start of July. I'm actually recording this on July 1st. And if you're alive and you've made it and you're watching this today, congratulations. You made it through half of this crazy, insane year. Congratulations. Anybody feel good about this year so far? None of us feel really great about this year. And here's why I bring all of that up. Not, not really to depress any of us, but to remind us of everything that's happened so far and to remind us of something that we need to talk about as we start today. We live in a season where everything intersects with politics. We live in a day and age where everything intersects with politics. Virtually everything else that I, that I put on the list, if you were paying attention to social media, if you were watching news stations, if you were reading things online, you know that just about everything that I just mentioned, at some point along the way, it got political, it got politicized, it forced people to take sides, and unfortunately, as people took sides, it caused our nation to become more and more and more divided than we've ever been. Let me give you one, one example of how, how things become politicized. The only time, the only time in our married life, the only time in my ministry life that my wife actually asks me what I'm going to wear when I preach is every other year when I preach a political sermon. Because my wife knows that I like to wear blue because it brings out my baby blue eyes, which are sparkling and you know just amazing to look at. And I, so I, I like to wear blue, but she says, no, you, you can't wear blue like you like to, because if you wear blue, people will assume you're a Democrat and tune you out before you even start talking. And if I can't wear a blue shirt for that reason, I certainly can't wear a red shirt because then people would assume that I'm a Republican and some people would tune me out before I even start talking. And then, so I go, well, what should I wear? Could I wear a black shirt, something neutral like a black shirt? And she goes, no, 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 then people will think you're wearing, you're, you're making a statement about race. And I say, well, what about a white shirt? She goes, definitely not a white shirt. And so today I decided to wear a, char a dark charcoal gray shirt because, and, and she still said, she's like, no, 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 if you wear that, people will think you're somehow making a statement about age. And I said, well, Jalen, someone's got to make a statement about the things that matter to you because of your advanced age and your gray hair. Take that. Okay. So there's the, like every, the, everything gets politicized. And so while I would love for us to exist in, in a world and live in a world where we could just say, you know what? Well, the church shouldn't talk about politics. The church should avoid politics. Unfortunately, I think we live in a day and we live in an age where we really can't do that because you exist and your faith exists in a world where you, you and your faith will intersect with politics because everything intersects with politics. So here's why I think this is so important for us to talk about as Jesus followers. We live in a world where we interact and our faith inter intersects with a politically charged environment in our city, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. So whether you like it or not, you will be surrounded by politics in 2020 and things will get politicized and even your faith may get politicized. And at the same time, if you're a part of our church and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, there's something I wanna make sure that you, that you understand in the face of all of that. Here's what I wanna make sure you understand. Because of your faith, someone has a higher claim on your life than earthly politics. 
Because of your faith, someone has a higher claim on your life than earthly politics. In other words, as a follower of Jesus, you are not primarily a citizen of Las Cruces. You are not primarily a citizen of the state of New Mexico. You are not primarily a citizen of the, of the, of the nation of the United States of America. You have a higher citizenship than any of that. And as a follower of Jesus, you are not first and foremost a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent, a Libertarian, a Green Party, a whatever. You are not primarily that. You belong to a kingdom before you belong to a country. You belong to a kingdom before you belong to a party. Now, if you're, if you're wondering where that comes from, in the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote something while sitting in a Roman prison writing to people living in a city, in another city under Roman rule that I think speaks, to so, speaks so significantly to where our faith lies on the priority scale when it comes to politics, when it comes to our nationality, when it comes to the national discussion of things that get politicized. Here's what he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. He said this, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. And then he said this, this is, the, this is the key verse. But we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Here's what Paul was saying. If you're a Jesus follower, above and beyond whatever label you wear when it comes to politics, and above and beyond whatever label you wear when it comes to your earthly citizenship, you have a higher calling, you have a higher identity, and you have a higher responsibility. You live as citizens of heaven. And while you're on earth, you live as a representative of heaven to the earth and to your neighbors and to the people that you interact with on a daily basis. You, you represent and you live as an ambassador of heaven to the earth. You're part, in other words, you're part of the church. And as much as the earthly politics matter and shape the life that we live in here and now, your faith in Christ, your willingness to follow the call of Jesus on your life, and your willingness to put your faith ahead of your politics and your identity as a Christ follower on the earth, it has far greater potential to impact the world and to impact someone's eternity. And I want to make sure that we understand that we don't want to miss out on an opportunity to impact someone's eternity because we get so focused on the here and now. Here's the bottom line. Your candidate will win or lose based on how America votes in November, but the church will win or lose based on our behavior between now and then. Our, our ability to continue to be church, a church of impact and a church of influence and a church that continues to reach people who have said no to Jesus before will determine, will be de determined by our behavior, by our willingness to love, by our willingness to live as citizens and representatives of heaven to the earth and to the city around us between now and November. That determines whether or not, whether or not the church wins or loses. And so here's the thing. Another verse that I, that how, how this plays out and what this looks like, a great example of this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In that chapter, Paul wrote this starting in verse 11. He says, because, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, in other words, we, we have a responsibility. Because Jesus saved us, we have a responsibility. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others, not, not of our rightness, not of our political rightness, not of our opinions rightness. We work hard to persuade others that God knows, God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we all died to our old life. He died 
catch this, for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and who was raised for them. Just in case anyone needs a reminder in this political season, Jesus died once for all, for everyone. Jesus died for Republicans, and Jesus died for Democrats. Jesus died for white people, Jesus died for black people, and Jesus died for everyone on the melanin spectrum in between. Jesus died for protesters, and Jesus died for non-protesters. Jesus died for people who post things on Facebook that you agree with, and Jesus died for people who post things on Facebook that you disagree with. And if you can actually believe this, Jesus died for white supremacists, and Jesus died for the radical extreme BLM activists. Jesus died for everyone. But here's the important thing that Paul mentions. Jesus died for everyone, not so they could feel affirmed and loved exactly where they were at any given moment in time, but Jesus died for everyone so that everyone would have an opportunity at a relationship with the God who loves them, who created them, who calls them their children, and loves them where they are, but does not want to leave them where they are. Jesus died so that everyone, everyone, all, every single one could have an invitation into the new life that he gives and that he brings and that he changes us into. He went on to say this, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. Side note, it is okay to change the way you see people and the way you see things. That is not a mark of, of, a, of a shifting worldview. That is a mark of maturity that you can acknowledge, I was wrong and I needed to change. It says this, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And then he says this, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And then he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Now, th this is where things get interesting. Paul says, look, here's what God has done through Jesus. God made it possible for all people from all backgrounds and all ethnicities and everywhere on the earth, and even people from all different belief backgrounds. God has made it possible for every single person to come to him through faith in Jesus. Everyone's welcome on this one road. It's exclusive, but it's inclusive. Everyone's welcome. Here's the path. Everyone's welcome. Here's the path. But then he says this, look, all of these people all of these people, all these different backgrounds, all these different political opinions, all these different beliefs, all these different everything. He says, look, you as the church, you have a responsibility. You as Jesus followers, you have a responsibility to live and to love and to lead in a way that it's possible for different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different opinions and different, and different ideas about how society should work. You must live and lead in a way that reconciles, that brings all of these people that brings the many into a relationship with the one. And so you have to, as Paul would say, look, you have to exist in a way that people can have a difference of opinion and they still unite around Jesus. Paul would say you have to, be, you have to understand that you can disagree politically, but you must love unconditionally. You, need to be, you can be politically divided, but you can be spiritually united. And I just want to say, if that sounds impossible to you, 
that's a good indicator that Jesus is not on the throne of your life, but that politics is on the throne of your life. If you would allow a, a political division to cause spiritual division, it might mean that you have placed politics on the throne of your life. And Paul would say, there is a better way. There is a way where Jesus sits on the throne of your life and he leads and he directs and not everyone has to agree with you for you to be spiritually united with someone. We have to allow for disagreement and difference of opinion because we understand that Jesus didn't die so that people could come to a political party or a, pol a particular opinion, but so that people could know him and follow him and love him and trust him with their lives and allow him to call him to call allow them to call him their heavenly father see that's our task that's the task of the church that's the task of movement church to live in a day and age and a world that's more divided than ever but to find a way to love and to lead so that many can become one under the leadership and the lordship of Jesus to reconcile a diverse group of people under one Lord, one Savior, one baptism. That is our marching orders. And that is ultimately our responsibility. So here's the thing. Today we titled today Talking Points because while that's our marching orders, there are some things in our world that it's important to talk about. And many of us, we, we've, we've settled for sound bites from our political party or the side that we kind of agree with. And I think as Jesus followers, Many of us, we might need a better way of talking about some of the things that are happening in our world. So I've got three things that I want us to talk about today. And you know, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about you know, current events. This is kind of the one Sunday every other year we decide to talk about what's happening in our world. But here's the first talking point that I think we have to embrace as Christians. Christians, Jesus followers, should lead the way in fighting for the value of vulnerable lives. Christians should lead the way in fighting for the value of vulnerable lives. See, we live in a day and age where people want to get divided over which lives ultimately matter. You know, black lives matter. No, all lives matter. Well, blue lives matter. Unborn lives matter. You know, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And what the, what, what the world around us is ultimately trying to do and what unfortunately some of us have settled for is we think we have to choose which lives matter at the cost of saying that other lives matter less. And as Jesus followers, we have a higher calling. We are called to, to not settle for the idea that some lives matter more than others. We're called to, to the understanding that every life was created in the image of God, that at, the, at creation and at the cross, every life mattered equally to Jesus. And every life was created in the image of God. There are no lives that matter more, but there are, are, are some lives that are more vulnerable in our society. It, see, in our, in our culture, there, there are some of us and some people who have a difficult time saying that black lives matter. And the reason that you have a difficulty saying that is not because you're racist, but because you have a difficulty in, with, with some of the things that the, the rest of the movement stands for. I understand that. But here's something that I want to say. Black lives absolutely matter. Black lives absolutely matter to me. They matter to our church. They matter to to God. Black lives absolutely 100% matter. One issue that I kind of take with that statement though is I don't think it goes far enough. I believe black lives are significant. I believe black lives are contributors. I believe people of, of color matter to God and they more than matter to God. They're significant. They make our world a better place. I think black lives don't just matter. I think they're significant. I think they're people who contribute. I think they're people who make our world a better place. They 
matter in our church. They're significant in our church. They lead our church and they make our church a better place to live. I think black fathers, black mothers, black doctors, black lawyers, black police officers, black firefighters, black nurses, black students, black sons, black daughters, they don't just matter. They make the world and they make our church a better place. They more than matter. They're significant. But here's what I know. The, the, the reason the, the phrase came up that black lives matter is that while many of us and, and most of us, I think most people in our, in our hearts and in our minds, we've extinguished racism, when it comes to our society and when it comes to the systems that, that our society has created, they don't always treat all people equally. And so the reason Black Lives Matter came into existence was to confront a, a, a systems and societies that do not always treat black people equally. And as Christians, this is where we have an opportunity to stand with our, our black brothers and sisters and say, if a system is not treating you equally, you are vulnerable and we are willing to stand with you and to fight for you. One of the things that breaks my heart as, as, I, as I talk to my black friends and as, as I, I talk to different people in the community, the thing that I hear over and over and over again is how strained the relationship is between the black community and, and, and law enforcement. When, when I talk to black people and I hear over and over again, you don't know the anxiety that fills me and that grips my heart if I get pulled over while speeding or if I get pulled over and I don't know the reason. If I have a tail light out, if I have a headlight out and I get pulled over, while in, in those few moments, while I'm waiting for, while, I, while I'm stopped and I'm waiting for the police officer to come up, they say, you don't, you don't know the anxiety that fills and grips my heart and fills my head. And they, they say, you, know, you don't know that like when, when that happens, I dial someone that I know and I put the phone on the, on the seat next to me so that someone else can be listening and hearing what's going on just in case something happens. And I, I, I just got to tell you, that, bre that breaks my heart. As, as a white person, I, I cannot understand that. As, as a white person, I just, I, like, I, I grew up in a world where, where police officers are, are wonderful people who enforce the law and they're out to, and they're, and they're there to protect you and that, and that they're there to, they're to make sure that your life works like, right. Matter of fact, like one time, I actually got in a car crash where I ran into a police officer. And five minutes after that, while they're writing a ticket, the police officer and myself, we were joking around and we were talking, like, we're talking about church and we're talking about all kinds of stuff. That's the type of relationship that I as a white man and many of you as white people have with police officers. That's, that's the difference here. Experience has taught me as a white man that police enforce the law and are fun to joke around with. Experience has taught people of color something far different. A few weeks ago, T.D. Jakes, in an interview, he said something that just stopped me in, in my tracks. He said this, look, we are not asking not to be arrested. We're just asking not to be tried on the sidewalk. We can all do better. As Jesus followers, we are called and commanded to do better. And we can all demand that our systems and our society be better and treat people, regardless of their color, treat people equally. Black lives are worth fighting for because black lives are made in the image of God. Black lives are made in the image of God. So are unborn lives. And, and, and I know this is touchy and I don't, I don't want to bring condemnation on anyone who has had an abortion because look, when, when I talk to people who have had an abortion, I know that there's enough shame and there's enough guilt there already. I don't, want to, I don't want to double down on that. I don't want to bring any more of that on you. But in a cultural moment where while we're talking about the value of a life, 
can I suggest that unborn children are lives. And as Jesus followers, we have a role to play in protecting the valuable lives of vulnerable children, unborn and and vulnerable children who have already been born. See, my faith informs me that God views life as beginning before a child takes its first independent breath. My faith tells me that we can and should should do better by unborn children and by unexpectedly pregnant mothers. That we can't just say, hey, Un, you know, protect the, the lives of these children. I'm, I, you know, I'm pro-life. To be pro-life means we also have to care for the unexpectedly pregnant mothers. My faith tells me that we can build systems to make adoption easier so that when a woman finds herself unexpectedly pregnant and a couple that can't have children, they don't have, they don't have to take out a second mortgage on their house so they can care for a child that they, that they have been praying for. My faith tells me, and I have a hunch, that if we reformed the adoption system, we would have less children end up in the foster system. And my faith tells me that we can do better for children in foster care. My faith tells me that all of these lives have incredible value and that we can and we must do better. In, in fact, in, in ancient times, in the ancient world, in ancient Rome, um, people didn't really have abortions because we, because we didn't have... The, you know, as people, the technology that is used now in abortions didn't exist. And so when someone would unexpectedly become pregnant, they would carry the child to term. And then what they would do is they would try to take care of getting rid of that child that they didn't want through something that they called exposure. If you've ever read any of the ancient tales of, of children who were left out in the woods to fend for themselves, that's ultimately what they were doing. They were unwanted children whose mothers or fathers took them out into the woods or took them out into the rivers, took them up into the mountains and said, if God means for this child to live, someone, you know, someone or something will take care of this child. And in the early church, they viewed this as something that was a tragedy. They viewed the, these children as people that God loved and had created in his image. And the church didn't stand around and go, oh, we're pro-life, you shouldn't do that. What the church did was they set up camps outside of the areas where people were most likely to go and expose these unwanted children. And when a parent would come back without a child that they had taken into the woods, Christians would run to the rivers, they would run to the mountains, they would run to the forest, and they would collect and gather these children because they believed If God wanted this child to live, he would send someone to help the child. And they decided that they were someone. Taking care of unwanted children is not something that Christianity invented in the 1950s when Roe v. Wade was going on. Taking care of unwanted children is something that has always been a part of the church because God believes that children are made in the image of God of God. Unborn lives are worth fighting for. And if we're called to fight for vulnerable, vulnerable populations, that means that we're also called to fight for people, for the rights of people in prison. During COVID, we've seen something tragic happen in our state with the outbreak and spread of COVID taking place um, among our de- detention centers. And I just want to say, people that are in prison are paying a debt, debt to society. And no matter how big that debt is, paying the debt should never mean terrible living conditions that contribute to the spread of a disease that can become very dangerous. We can and we must do better as a society. And one more group. One thing that was, that was appalling to me as, as COVID began to spread and as coronavirus was, was taken on is, is the amount of people that were my, my age and younger who were saying things like, well, this is a disease that only affects the elderly and people who are in nursing homes and it only affects people who are have underlying conditions and they weren't going to live that much longer anyway. 
And I just want to say, as Jesus followers, we are to care for the weak and the vulnerable. There is no, oh, they were only going to live so much longer in our vocabulary. We are to call to care for the weak and vulnerable. And that means that we care about those with underlying conditions. We care for those in nursing homes. We care for the elderly in our neighborhoods. Christians should lead the way in fighting for the value of vulnerable lives. That's our first talking point. Here's the second one. We have to develop the art of confronting without canceling. See, we live in a day where cancel culture has taken over. And if you, let me just tell you, if you go far enough back into someone, into anyone's past, your past, my past, anyone's past, there will be something that I guarantee before very long, every single one of us has something that we've done or said in the past or in the past week that could get us canceled. And I'll just say this about cancel culture. I think it's unfortunate not because people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions and the things that they say and the way that they treat people. But I think it's unfortunate because cancel culture doesn't allow an avenue and a relationship for change to take place and for growth to occur. See, when you, when you confront, but you maintain a relationship, you hold someone accountable for their missteps and causing harm, but you also create a bridge to help someone learn, to help someone understand, to help someone grow, and to help someone become a better person. Cancel cuts down the bridge, which means everyone is forced to pick a side and no one grows. Cancel cuts off the chance, ultimately, for redemption. Here's what, here's what I know. I love this, this quote from Andy Stanley, who said this back in January. I stole it right from him. He said, this, he said this, When forced to choose between the lesser of two evils, you still have to call out the evil, not for our sake and not for a party's sake, but for the world's sake. See, when, what, what he was saying, look, we, we all have this tendency that when we choose a side, even when you know, we believe that the candidates weren't particularly great, it's like, well, this is the candidate I choose, chose, this is the side I choose, that when we choose a side all too often, we think that we have to live with and defend every action of the side that we choose. Instead, Andy Stanley said, no, no, no. When you choose a side for our benefit, for the church's benefit, for the world's benefit, when you see evil on any side, and especially when you see evil on the side that you chose and that you have a relationship with, we have an obligation to confront what needs to be confronted. See, here, here's an example of, of confront versus cancel. When it comes to the acts of police brutality that unfortunately we have all seen on our cameras and news stations all too often recently, there is a confront option and there's a cancel option. Cancel is defund and disband the police. Confront is we must reform the police. Cancel says defund, disband, get rid of, we don't need the police anymore because the police did something wrong, a police officer did something wrong, there's numerous acts by the police that have, that have been something wrong, so we need to get rid of all those police officers. That's cancel. Confront says we can change and we can do better with the police. See, let's be honest, none of us want to live in a world without some form of law enforcement. I want to know that someone is enforcing the law and protecting, our, protecting citizens. But I also want to know that those systems are working the same for everyone in society. So I, so I don't want to cancel the police, but I think it's important to confront what's happened and make sure that we take steps to ensure that the system works the same, regardless of skin color or any other variables that might 
uh, that might exist. Now, here's the thing. I am, I am not smart enough to have the answers for this. And chances are you're not smart enough to have the answers for this. None of, not any one of us is smart enough to have all the answers for this. But as a society, I want to say, I hope we sit with this long enough to figure out the answers. I hope this isn't just a moment that in three years from now, we end up visiting all over again because we got all hyped up and thought we had some answers, but it was just short-term band-aids. I hope we actually can confront this and sit with it long enough and keep pushing on it long enough that real meaningful change occurs. We have to develop the art of confronting without canceling. And so here's, here's, that's, that's our second talking point. Let me give you the third one. Don't compromise your testimony by sharing untruths. See, in the last election cycle, there was this new phenomenon, this new um, term that, that, that got thrown around a whole lot, and it was the term fake news. <laughs> that was a fun one, wasn't it? And see, here's, here's the thing. With fake news, we all, everyone believes that the other side is guilty of using fake news to, dis, to, to di, disinform people, misinform people, and, and to, to tarnish the reputation of their side. The other side is using it to ruin my side. The other side is using it to harm my side. Let me just speak really, really slowly on this so that everyone can understand this. Both sides use fake news to make the other side look bad. This isn't a one-sided thing. This is both sides use this to try to make other people look bad. Both sides use fake news and both sides utilize outright outrage headlines because who cares what's in the article? I can make the headline as crazy as possible knowing that no one reads the article and that's not going to stop anyone from sharing it. We see stuff and we spread stuff. We see stuff and we spread stuff. And we never spread the stuff that hurts our side. We only spread the stuff that hurts the other side. And can I, and can I just say this as a pastor? As Christians, we are supposed to be people who spread truth. Not sort of truths, not half truths, not seems like it might be true, not I wish it was true because it makes the other side look really bad. Real, real truth. And I'll just say this, if we're knowingly sharing untruth, we have already given away our integrity and any moral authority that we claim to have. And if we're unknowingly sharing untruth, it means we're lazily giving it away. We need to do better. See, here's the real reason that, that, that I say this. I want you to be believable when you share the actual gospel with someone. I want, when you share the gospel, I do not want people to wonder if they have to fact check what you're saying. I want you to be believable when you share the actual gospel with someone. See, the gospel is a tough pill to swallow. It's a tough sell. Here's the gospel. The Son of God, the one and only sinless Son of God, came to, came to live in this earth by being born of a virgin. That's a tough pill to swallow. He lived sinlessly, which no other human being has ever accomplished. He was put to death by the state. Three days later, he rose himself from, from the dead. And 10 days later, he ascended to heaven. That's the gospel. That's the story of salvation. That's the gospel that we're trying to convince people to believe in because we believe that that story has the power to save and that story has the power to change a life. That the one at the center of the story has the power to change a life. But that's a difficult story to get people to believe in even if they believe every word that you say. And that story becomes a lot more difficult to believe if people wonder if they have to fact check and double fact check and triple fact check everything you say because they're not sure that you share the truth. We have to and we can do better. 
I don't want that story to be any harder to believe for anyone. And so for our message to believable, we have to be believable, which means we have to maybe reprioritize the truth in what we spread and what we share. Now, here's the thing. At the the beginning of this whole thing, I told you, my hope was to offend everyone a little, but attack no one. Honestly, my, my hope is that my, I, I was praying this all week. My hope and my prayer is that I could bother everyone just enough that you, can, you cannot sit idle anymore. And, and here's why. The work that we have to do as churches and as a church is far too important to let your politics stop the mission of the church, to reconcile people to God and to bring the many to the only one who offers real and lasting hope. We cannot let politics get in the way of the things that matter most. And with the things that matter most to God are people because he created us in his image. See, once upon a time, once upon a time, early on in the life of the church, the church was a group of people from all kinds of backgrounds, from different cultures, from different religious beliefs, from different ethnicities, who lived in the strongest empire that the world had ever known. And without ever focusing on politics, their love for one another, their commitment to loving and serving the poor, their commitment to following Jesus with everything they had, when even when it was incredibly costly for them, their refusal to, to be divided, it changed an empire. It changed the world. And here's the thing, while much has changed, I still believe that's possible. And I believe it could happen again if we'll decide that we're going to follow Jesus with everything we have and we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing, and we're going to love like Jesus has called us to love. We're going to live like Jesus has called us to live. We're going to serve like Jesus has called us to serve. And we're going to love people the way God loved people through Christ by being willing to sacrifice for the good of someone else. That's our talking points. That's our marching orders. And I'm just crazy enough to believe it could change the world again. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I know that what, we, what I just said, it's, it's heavy. And some of us are sitting with it, and some of us are sitting and we're angry right now because of what I just said. And God, some of us, we're sitting and we're rejoicing at other parts. And some of us are finding ourselves everywhere in the middle where we're angry at one thing and we're excited about another thing. God, I just... I just thank you for that. I thank you for every bit of emotion that people are feeling and experiencing right now. God, as I've prayed all week, I pray that this would bother everyone just enough that we have to keep thinking about it. We have to keep it at the forefront because God, what you want at the forefront is for us to follow you, for us to know you, for us to live for you, for us to love for you, for us to serve for you. And God, so I pray that as your people, as citizens of heaven, we would no longer be people who let politics get in the way of the people that you have called us to love, the people that you've called us to reconcile to you. So God, if there's any way in us that our politics have gotten in the way of a person that you love and that you created, God, help us to see that, help us to change that. Help us to be willing and able to be mature enough to admit that we have some work to do. And God, wherever that is, help us to have the wisdom to know what it is. Help us to have the courage to actually take whatever steps you're calling us to take. We love you, God. Help us to be your representatives here on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.